Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. So, we left off on this paper called Living Islam with Purpose by Dr. Farooq, Omar Farooq Abdullah. So if you don't have the paper, if you just search for Living Islam with Purpose, Omar Abdullah, you'll find the PDF for it, inshallah. If you, if you want to follow along with more than my voice. <coughs> if you don't, that's also fine, inshallah. So this paper, as a brief reminder, basically what he's saying is that Islam is vast. And in order to help us to understand Islam properly and put things in the right place, uh, it's helpful to provide some operational principles, he calls them, operational principles. So these operational principles are meant to facilitate our ability to understand the religion and proper, properly um, uh, there was a word that he used for that Deploy it Properly deploy it right? And uh, so we covered the first We're in I think number three of the principles right now Yeah we're in number three right now So does anyone remember what number one was? Without looking at your notes? Uh, using reason? Yes uh, Yani Roughly um, What was it? Trusting reason. Trusting reason was principle number one. Trusting reason. And then principle number two? Respecting dissent. Respecting dissent. So, uh, trusting reason was number one, and he goes into the detail. Number two is respecting dissent. Number three is? Um, focusing on communal obligations. Yeah, focusing on societal obligations. Societal obligations. So that's the one that we're in right now. We're at the very end of it. And so basically what he said up to this point is that the, the body of the religious teachings, a part of that is, ob a part of the religious teachings are obligations that are individual, they're fardain, and a part of the religious teaching is obligations that are communal, societal obligations. He uses the translation societal obligations. Individual obligation is something I myself am responsible for it in front of God by myself. Nobody can do it for me, whatever. Societal obligation is something that the community of the believers are responsible for it. And uh, not the entire, like the entirety of the community doesn't have to do it, but some, some, some sufficient number of people within the community have to do it in order to fulfill that thing. Uh, that's a, that's, a, that's a something that the community needs for the welfare of the community, right? So that's a societal obligation. And... Uh <coughs> He also mentioned this idea of the um, the major principles of the what the religion seeks to pr protect and preserve, that the religion seeks to preserve uh, belief, intellect, family, uh, wealth, and life. That wasn't in order, but should be religion, life, uh, intellect, family, wealth. The first two are, the the last three are not really so strict on order, the first two are. But in any case, those are the five major objectives of the Sharia, is to protect those things. So he says that if we want to think about what are societal obligations, we apply the principle of مَا لَا يَتِمُ الْوَاجِبِ إِلَّا بِهِ فَهُوَ وَاجِبِ That which is necessary to fulfill an obligation is an obligation. So if the obligation is to protect these five things, 
whatever is necessary to protect those five things is generally speaking it's going to become a societal obligation and then he commented on how um, uh, one of the big reasons why the Muslims are in the situation that they're in is because we put our entirety of our focus on individual obligations and we neglected the societal ones and so you have a degradation of society and of civilization and so on now all of that then leads him up to the following statement on the end of page 16 our societal obligations قال المؤلف حفظه الله تعالى ونفن الله وياه بعلومه في الدارين أمين the author says the following may Allah protect him and give us and him benefit from his knowledge in this life and the next Dr. Omar is still alive Allah give him a long life with good health inshallah Amin. <coughs> still mashallah, strong as a lion Allah keep him strong so he says this uh, requires us to address urgent issues that have surfaced in the American Muslim community over recent decades The topic of women in Islam, by the way, might come up in this hour. Something related to it, since this is contemporary readings and Muslim thought. So, you know, once we finish these, maybe we'll go on to other papers. Eventually, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to some women-related things sooner or later. I'm not sure, but we'll see. Um, over recent decades. The operational principle of societal obligation naturally requires candor in identifying problems, otherwise they cannot be solved. I will address three issues below that demand attention and constitute societal obligations of the first order. Ready or not, career choices, marriage, and liquor franchises. Okay. Number one, career choices. All professions and fields of learning that serve the community's material and cultural needs fall under societal obligations. There can be no place in the community for elitism. Any honest profession is a good profession. It's a very important principle. Right. Any honest profession is a good profession. You can't like someone, oh, look at them, all they are is a taxi driver or something. No, if they're a taxi driver and they're doing their work with honesty and dignity, they're, they're honorable and dignified. If they're a custodian, if they clean bathrooms, whatever it might be, that's honor. Whether or not you know, certain professions might make it uh, easier or harder to fulfill one's basic financial obligations, that's a different conversation. But the, the profession itself is, as long as it's uh, an honest profession, it's a good profession. So he says, whether a person is driving a taxi or working in a hospital emergency room, each livelihood helps serve a vital societal function, which is true, right? Both of them are needed in society. Too often, however, our community's attitudes toward career choices and professions have everything to do with money and social status and little to do with our overall societal needs as a developing Muslim community in America. Medicine, engineering, and a number of other well-paying fields are well-represented, if not over-represented, in the American Muslim community. They have indisputable value, but the community's tendency to socially compartmentalize desirable careers within this limited range stultifies our future. Social sciences like psychology, sociology, and anthropology are often mistakenly regarded as less worthy because they are not as lucrative and do not afford elite status in our community. In reality, the social sciences play a critical role in modern society and constitute key priorities for American Muslims. They serve the community's essential interests in areas such as mental health, social welfare, and cultural development. Our ability to function effectively as Muslims in modern society requires a nuanced understanding of modernity.
Such an understanding falls squarely within the competence of the social sciences. It is a primary societal obligation for American Muslims to develop su sufficient cadres <coughs> excuse me, of well-trained social scientists whose research is not only of use to the Muslim community, but is valuable to the greater society at large. So basically he's saying like, if you don't have people who can engage with ideas at a high level, all of the big ideas, politics, society, culture, uh, history, you're going to be lost. Bizzapt. 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 Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no bias. No bias here. Yeah. Good fields. They need delicate traversing, but good fields. Specializations in the humanities like history, modern thought, philosophy, and literature are widely considered in our community as marginal, but they too are necessary and meet essential societal obligations similar to those of the social sciences. So now you have the humanities, right? Humanities, social science, but all of them are necessary. They impart a wider view of the world, how its past relates to its present and future, and the seminal ideals of our times. They give direct access to effective cross-cultural understanding and intellectual development and enable the community to take interpretive control of itself and its religion in a contemporary context. This is very important. So what he's trying to say is, and this is, uh, I shouldn't say what he's trying to say. One of the things that I understand from this, I shouldn't put words in the sheikh's mouth, but <laughs> one of the things that I understand from this is that we of course have to understand our religion correctly from its sources. But we can't understand how we're going to do our religion in a particular time and place if we don't understand the general, you know, the, the knowledge of how to interpret time and place, which is in the social sciences and in the humanities. So and it's necessarily the case that a, a dual mastery is needed at some level. And that's what makes this enterprise so difficult. So, uh, for example, like one time someone told me that I, I studied Islam formally for about six years, maybe seven years. I guess six, more like six. Um, which in, in my scheme of existence and world of being is not very much at all. Like I generally don't consider someone to have studied seriously until they spent like 10 or 15 years. Six years is like, it's just six years, no big deal. <laughs> you know? But uh, what's challenging about it is that if you're like an imam, for example, if you're an imam who's going to do their job properly and speak to contemporary issues, I mean, that six years is like you just got your feet wet. Only on the religious side, you just got your feet wet. Not to mention all of the other sciences. So, you know, like, I'm very grateful that my degree was in like some sort of a hodgepodge between humanities and social sciences, third world studies. And at least I have like some exposure to certain things and think, thinking about them and stuff. But uh, it's, it's very challenging, and, um, but it's very necessary. That's why the people, and, I, and you know, I think, alhamdulillah, there's, there's a growing trend in our community that's going to take some time to bear its fruit, but it's people who are like, and you can put their politics to the side, that's not my point, but people who are like Dr. Omar, people who are like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, Imam Zaid Shakir, people like um, uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, like that generation of people who they spent 10, 15 years studying Islam, minimum, and then like as its foundation and then they kept going for the next 20, 30 years after that. And then on top of it, they have very strong expertise in 
you know, different modern sciences. Like Imam Zaid has his master's in political science. Dr. Omar is a PhD, right? It's in Islamic studies, but he also did other fields. And I mean, there are people who are Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, Timothy Winters, like so impressive. If you ever just you want to listen to someone who speaks like he speaks as if he's reading a PhD paper. That's just the way he speaks. Like it's he's so eloquent. It's amazing. <laughs> and uh, and he'll just talk like that. Like it, it's as if he's just you know hanging out in the living room. That's the way that he talks because his the depth of the mastery of the west like the Western canon so to speak of the social sciences, the humanities, philosophy, history, all of that kind of stuff is very deep. And his uh, knowledge of these other things is very profound as well. Like Dr. Omar, for example. Um, taught comparative religion for like something like 15 years so all of like the re and he's a he's a he's a historian really like his love is in history so all of his uh, i mean it's just like remarkable dr omar is a little bit different because you don't always get everything that he has like he doesn't work as an academic right anyways these are side points point is we need these things what's necessary especially moving forward is that you see that people who took those pe those examples seriously, we don't really know them that much yet in the general American Muslim community, but there are people who are like in their 30s now, maybe in their late 30s, early 40s, late 20s, and they took very seriously the idea of, I'm going to learn my religion properly and soundly. I'm not going to be a scholar in it, but I'm going to learn it properly, and I'm going to take it from the people of knowledge, and I'm going to excel in my field, whatever it might be psychology, social sciences, humanity, so Islamic studies even in the Islamic studies departments and so on. Those people in the next I, I believe and I hope that like in the next ten years ish, we're gonna start to see really amazing things from like that generation of people. Because, you know, they're all under the radar right now because these other people still exist. And they're just like hanging out. You don't really know them, you know. People like Sheikh Walid Musad, others, may Allah preserve them and increase them. Dr. Maryam Shaybani, very impressive. Dr. Maryam's very impressive. Uh, she just finished her PhD in uh, University of Chicago. Um, and many others, mashallah, many, many others. So I'm hoping that that like generation of scholars in various fields will begin to really contribute to a lot of things intellectually, inshallah. Uh, okay. That's number one. Number two, marriage. Among the most serious crises that face large segments of the American Muslim community today are the hurdles and unjustifiable difficulties that many Muslim women and men of marriageable ages confront when looking for suitable spouses. The problem is especially acute for women. It is familiar to women from immigrant families, but is no less severe for African-American Muslim women. The crisis is undoubtedly complex. One of its major causes is the limited pool from which Muslim spouses are selected. Other reasons include problems that relate to economic class, ethnicity, and cultural background. In addition, Muslims do not generally allow dating, which for many people in the West is a prelude to marriage. American Muslims have yet to develop effective cultural alternatives to, that allow them, within Islamic norms, to negotiate gender interaction and facilitate marriage through practices such as courtship. The real and potential harms likely to result from the marriage crisis at the individual and community level are unimaginable. Facing the problem truthfully, as many Muslims already do, and finding solutions for it is an urgent societal obligation. So this is pretty, uh, it's pretty serious, you know, very, very serious. 
and this, there's a lot of facets to it. We could probably talk about it for like years. Um, yeah, yeah. When did he write this? <laughs> it's in the beginning, 2000. Was it like the early 2000s? Yeah. I wonder if you would probably add on to this, considering divorce has become so much more commonplace within the last 10 years in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes it even more. I n- I know that it's something that he thinks is still a big problem. I can say that much. Um. A lot of it, re- you know, we before this paper we had Islam and the cultural imperative. One of the things that good culture does is it facilitates that whole thing. It facilitates gender interaction, it facilitates marriage, all of these kind of things. And of course bad culture doesn't, makes it worse. But at least any culture actually still facilitates it because you know what to expect and you know what to do. Even if it's bad, at least you still know what to do. Um, but the big challenge for us is we don't have any particular culture around marriage in the Muslim American community and that's not really I don't think that's really like necessarily a fault um, in the sense that that kind of stuff takes time like inevitably in, in an early the, the demographics of the Muslim American community inevitably lend to some level of difficulty in this regard and hopefully, inshallah, these things will begin to, um, you know, begin to work themselves out. That was one of the big things that we did on college campuses and chaplaincy was like, you know, <laughs> help people with their marriage situations to be, you know, someone's interested in someone else. How do I go about it? What can I do? How can I talk to them? How can I do this, that, whatever? Like, that was no shortage of of those type of things happen on the campuses alhamdulillah and i think it's important that we were there to be able to um you know guide people through that process because it it really does need help it needs community and uh sometimes it needs courageous stances too but these all of these things they they turn back on they they go back to community and how we're going to make the decisions we make and the consequences of them in the future and so on so marriage is one of these societal obligations that needs attention third one that he mentions is liquor franchises dr omar lives in chicago dr omar lives in chicago it's important uh like this whole liquor franchise thing in in the west coast or at least i don't know how it is in the bay but in southern california it's not it's not the same level of an issue as it is in like the Midwest and on the East Coast with Muslims owning like all the liquor stores and stuff. Here in, in Southern California, it's usually like, you know, the stereotype is that Koreans own the liquor stores in the hood, basically. In the Bay, they have the Yemeni thing going on, yeah. I, I know in like in Chicago, in Detroit, a lot of places in the Northeast, it's a similar problem. It's like generally the Muslims who own the liquor stores in the inner cities that are the only place where people can get food and all they sell them is like what you usually get in liquor stores which is liquor and garbage fast food and all these kind of things right so this is a big issue so he says one of the most serious social ills affecting the american muslim community at present is the existence of thousands of liquor stores owned by immigrant muslims in the nation's inner cities 
Their presence threatens to undermine the gains that African-American Muslims made during the 20th century through social engagement in these communities. In Chicago and other American cities, the ubiquitous presence of Muslim-owned liquor franchises has been a source of tension and conflict. For Muslims to operate such stores or to ignore their presence is much more than a violation of the Islamic code. The liquor stores harm the neighborhoods and families where they are located and generally cast all Muslims in a negative light. In the eyes of prominent Muslim and non-Muslim civic leaders, the Muslim-owned liquor businesses in the inner cities are a socio-economic blight. It is a top priority social ob societal obligation that American Muslims address this problem more effectively and find a judicious solution. So again, he's just raising particular examples of societal obligations that are much wider and broader and heavier in their impact right like these are things that are affecting the system okay and i'm sure people can think of many many others um I remember when I was in high school, it's probably high school or like middle school when Starbucks first showed up. Now I'm drinking coffee, right? And nobody drank coffee. And uh, a friend of mine was like, hey man, let's go to the store and like try this coffee, you know? <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about coffee? We're not going to drink coffee. Like, what are you? He's like, no, they have this thing called the caramel frappuccino. <laughs> you have to come try it. And I was like, okay. So we came and tried it. The, the frappuccinos were a gateway drug. <laughs> like, they were such a gateway drug. Now, everybody, like, that's how everyone got in the door. Even if you go, to, now if you go to these, like, if you're in Irvine and these places where people have too much money to spend, and you, you go in, like, these coffee shops in the morning, like, all the middle school kids and stuff are lined up in the coffee shop in the morning getting their sugar drugs. I said, they're gateway drug, man. SubhanAllah. I, I don't know. SubhanAllah. Yeah, it's wild. Like you're going in the morning buying stuff. It's wild. Anyways. I'm like... And then these, these are the same people, by the way, if you ask them to donate $15 a month to an Islamic organization, they get mad at you. <laughs> I'm just... Oh, we should be very... Everyone should understand these things. Like, oh, wait, $30 a month? Brother, you're asking too much. You know, $30 a month is too much for me. Okay, well, you spend $5 on coffee every single day. That was like $150 in a month. Yeah, it's insane. And then they get mad. Oh, we don't have this, and we don't have this, and we don't have this, because you spent all your money on coffee. <laughs> huh? It's not even good coffee. Okay, here we go. All right. Operational principle number four before this escalates to something really... Uh, but yeah, I'm a little bit like I like the good old American coffee pot coffee, you know, like yeah, grimy coffee that's made for people that are gonna work. <laughs> you know, not like <laughs> He's a blue collar coffee. Blue blue collar coffee. Yeah. That's it, man. Make a commercial. That that'll be the funding for the Medjlis. Make a coffee commercial. America's cup. <laughs> Operational principle number four. I shouldn't have put that on the live stream. <laughs> Operational principle number four, setting priorities. So this is the biggest, or is it number five? This is the biggest. 
It's number five. Number five is the biggest section in the in the paper. So number four is not as much. Inshallah, maybe we can finish. We'll see. Setting priorities. Subhanallah, this paper, I'm I'm telling you like one of the things that's very true. Dr. Omar told me this years ago. He said, We don't need a lot of knowledge, we need the right knowledge. We don't need like that's not the solution is not in massive quantities of learning always for the regular for the average person. If someone is in some sort of area of specialization, of course they need they need a lot of knowledge. But for the average person, what they need is the right they need the right understanding of the religion put in the right place, and then they can they can work from there. So, like these these things that he's uh, he's writing about here are really amazing. Two thousand four, did you say? Was it seven? It's on two thousand seven. Yeah, subhanAllah, it's still not dated. Yeah, that's either really impressive on the Sheikh's part or really bad on our part. But 12 years and it's not dated. I was just trying to think about when did I read this, probably. Like, when did I find these papers the first time and read them? I know we were still in Egypt, so. It's probably like 2009 ish, you know, because we wanted to, like, I don't know how we even found it, but alhamdulillah. Operation princi- operational principle number four, setting priorities. The Prophet Muhammad wasallam said, There was no prophet before me, but that it was a duty for him to guide his nation to what he knew was best for them and warn them about what he knew was worst for them. Aspiring for what is best and avoiding what is worst are the two primary goals of the prophetic law. The eminent legal scholar Al-Iz ibn Abd salam you excited about this? He's Shafi'i. He's Shafi'i too. I'm writing right now. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and Ezeb and Salam. He's called, um, what is he called? Sultan al Ulama. And Ezeb and Abdus Salam was called Sultan al Ulama because he had these like really heavy duty stances with the government at his time like he he took some he was in egypt he also fought i'm pretty sure if i'm not mistaken he fought against the crusaders during that period too uh eminent legal scholar and is ibn abdus salam summed up the entirety of islam in one phrase المفاسد, to secure benefits and ward off detriments so he said basically if you were to summarize and distill the entirety of the prophetic religion what is it bring benefit re- get rid of harm Bring benefit, get rid of harm. Focusing on benefits and detriments is part of the universal prophetic legacy and therefore constitutes a categorical Islamic obligation. Understanding the importance of setting priorities is a necessary operational principle in Islam, but as obvious as the principle may seem, many Muslims are oblivious to it in practice. This is really one of the most common issues. We have a really hard time putting things in the right order. We make mountains out of molehills, right? Like they say, don't don't make a mountain out of a molehill. We make mountains out of molehills. Like we take things that are really not that big of an issue, and we make them huge things. And then we take other things that are actually huge things, and we pretend like they're no big deal. You know, so you like completely humiliate somebody. And you're like, oh no, brother, they should just be patient and forgive them. It's like, no, they should respect the honor of other people. Like that's that's a major high level principle, right? Like. Oh, no, you know, like abuse becomes a joke. Like, oh, you just abuse this and that and so on and so forth. And like, oh, like respecting human dignity and not abusing people is a huge high-level issue. 
has major consequences. But we act like it's no big deal. And then we take things like, where did you put your hands when you were praying? And we make it as if like this is the end of the world. Where did you put your hands? How did you move your finger? Are your feet touching someone else's feet? Like this is just completely bonkers. A complete like complete betrayal of the understanding of the prophetic religion, right? It's not that those things don't necessarily matter. They may or they may not, depending on which one we're referring to. But it's that they don't matter that much. They, they put things in the right place. To help secure society's well-being, Islamic law sets three descending levels of priority, which rank benefits and harms according to their magnitude. So this is, this is very important conceptually. Three levels of priority which rank benefits and harms according to their magnitude. Number one is necessities, dururiyat. Number two is needs, hajiyat. And number three is compliments, takmiliyat or tahsiniyat, depending on who wrote it. So there's necessities, needs, and basically like luxuries, compliments, things that, things that complement the needs and the necessities, but they're not really needs or necessities. I think he's going to give examples, so I won't do that right now. Each of them will be discussed in fuller detail below after first discussing the five major objectives of the law upon which they are based, which I just was talking about. Three levels of priority draw distinctions between the various aspects of prophetic law. They give highest priority to what is essential to society's well-being and lower priority to what is not. By setting priorities, Muslims are able to work toward their best interest in good times and bad by allocating time and resources to major needs without becoming preoccupied with minor concerns or with false priorities. Okay. The Arabic words masalih and mafasid, benefits and detriments, have a slightly different emphasis than their English counterparts, benefits and detriments. So masalih and mafasid are slight, they're generally translated as benefits and detriments, but they're not exactly how it is in English. In English, benefits may first bring to mind non-essential advantages and conveniences. Likewise, the word detriments often brings to mind disadvantages and inconveniences. The Arabic word masalih literally refers to what brings about wholeness, healthiness, and well-being. Mm. It's really beautiful when you think about it. The masalih. The masalih are the things that they, they do sulh. Right? Like a sulh is when you, when you make peace with somebody. When you bring something back into wholeness. You, it's, it's from the same idea. So it refers to that which brings about wholeness, healthiness, and well-being. It immediately brings essential and useful needs to mind, although it includes non-essential advantages and conveniences as well. Mafasid is the semantic pair of masalih, like good and evil in English. Mention of the one brings the other to mind. Linguistically, mafasid refers to what causes corruption and decay. It immediately brings to mind fundamental harms and damages, including disadvantages and inconveniences. Benefits and detriments are neither uniform nor abstract. They are inseparably tied to concrete circumstances and realities. Likewise, the imperatives of Islamic law are not equal regarding the importance of their purposes and rationales. Without setting priorities, the ultimate purposes of Islam become obscured and disconnected from their social purpose. It, it will stay with it. It's going to become more clear. Determining priorities requires making difficult judgments about the magnitudes of diverse benefits and detriments in different contexts and the priority and rank of corresponding elements of the law. In Islamic law, the legal discipline that studies how to make such evaluations is called the science of counterbalancing, ilmun muwazana. Historically, the renowned jurists Ash-Shatibi and Ibn Taymiyyah were foremost in this field. Uh, 
And Ezra bin Abdul Salam talks about that in a book that's here in the library called Al-Qawa'id Al-Kubra. And um, he starts it by saying that it's very that there's there's things that are masalih and there's things that are mafasid. And it's very rare that in the decisions that we have to make in life, it's very rare that you find a decision that is only maslaha or a decision that's only mafsida. You should, generally speaking, there's some sort of mixing. That you might look at it and, and realize like, oh, there's some benefit here and there's some harm here, but the benefit is more or the harm is more. So generally it's not so black and white. That this thing is only bad Or this thing is only good It's not usually so black and white And it takes some level of uh, discernment That has to be developed in that way Islamic law sets the three priorities According to a hierarchy of legal goals The highest of them are the five major objectives Al-Maqasil al-Khamsa and kubra They are the preservation of religion Self, reason, children and wealth Those are the five that I had mentioned before Right some scholars add personal and family honor ird, as a sixth objective, but all agree on the main five. So all scholars agree that these five main objectives are the five main objectives of the religion. It's to preserve these five things. Uh, Ashatabi actually goes so far as to say that every civilization agrees on these five objectives, Islam and otherwise. Muslim civilization and otherwise And any civilization that's going to last And going to have any sort of benefit Will agree on these five principles That these things have to be maintained And if you think about it like the, the At least theoretical foundations Of like even American society Respects these five things right? Like you can't have a society That's not chaos If you don't have some sort of understanding Of the importance of these things uh, these five major objectives constitute the grand all-enveloping rationales of Islam. They are the pivot point around which the most binding individual and societal obligations revolve. The primary goal of Islamic jurisprudence is to secure these objectives first or as effectively as possible before turning to lesser priorities. So all five of these are in the necessities. When we said that you have the necessities and you have the needs and you have the complements, these five are the necessities. These are the highest, highest level. The primary goal of Islamic jurisprudence is to secure these objectives, I said that. In Islamic legal theory, the five major objectives are critical to the welfare of all human societies, regardless of religion, because the erosion of, a sing of even a single one of them threatens the continued existence of the society as a whole. Okay, so now he's going to go into the five. <coughs> Any questions so far? Following? Inshallah. Preservation of the religion entails everything that is necessary for sound Islamic understanding and practice. Each of the five operational principles in this paper falls under the imperative of preserving the religion. So the operational principles in this paper are about preserving the religion. Side note, if you, just to give you a little bit of encouragement, if it, the reason why I'm reading it, as I've said before, is because Dr. Omar's wording is very particular and it's very good. And if we summarize it, we lose a lot. And the reason why we'd like to use things that you can read is so that you can go back and read it. And uh, one of the things that Mortimer Adler said about reading is a really good book. If you're not familiar with him, it's called How to Read a Book. Very important book for anyone who's in and has gone past, like anyone who's doing higher level education. It's a very, very important book. The earlier in your education, the better. Another good one is called How to Study by Swain, S-W-A-I-N. 
It's in the public domain. He's from like the early 1900s. It's like you're reading a book on, like from the Muslims. It's incredible. His rules of like how to read text and how to think about it and how to make conclusions and not make conclusions. So it's very short because back then they used to write properly. Early 1900s, like it's very short, but it's very strong. So one of the things that Mortimer Adler says, he's a big proponent of, or he was a big proponent of only reading like classic books. And he said like any book that you read should be just hard enough. Like you should want to read things that are just hard enough that you can't read it easily. But it's not so hard that you can't understand it except through accessing outside works. So basically it's hard enough that if you sit with it, you need to spend some time in it, but if you spend some time in it, you'll be able to understand it in and of itself. And that's how you like up your level in reading. And upping one's level in reading is really, really important. Uh, <coughs> it's very painful, but it's important. <laughs> yeah. uh, the first time I tried to read Islam and the Black American was in Egypt. This is like, you know, I went to UCSD did the humanities, whatever third world studies is, humanities or social sciences, I don't know. And, you know, did relatively well and so on. And I sat down to read Islam and the Black American and it was a disaster. <laughs> like, I couldn't get out of the introduction. And, uh, but just to be fair, I asked Dr. Jackson about that. <laughs> I was like, I couldn't get out of the introduction, Dr. Jackson, you know, <laughs> like, what's going on? Um, and he said, I intentionally made the introduction really hard. And part of it was that the field that he was writing in and what he was writing about and like he said basically he had to flex his academic prowess in the introduction of the book so that the book and his scholarship would re be respected in the broader field of the academy. So he had to like, he kind of had to go in a little bit. Um, you could see it also like he has someone attacked him on like some you know, ideas, and he wrote a response to them. I forget what it's called right now, but it's it's online somewhere. And he goes like, it's really tough to read because it's like really academically high. How recent is that? Hmm? How recent is that? So, like years ago. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, he's an artist. And, and Dr. Jackson, like one time, just to give you guys a side on Dr. Jackson, because inshallah we'll read some of his papers too. Like, I was with a brother one time who was doing his PhD in anthropology, and we visited Dr. Jackson. And uh, Dr. Jackson, obviously, his PhD is in Islamic studies, right? So we're talking and, like, walking, and the brother's asking him some questions and talking to him about some of his research and stuff. And, and Dr. Jackson's just, like, full-on engaging him in the ideas, the authors, their writings. He's like, yeah, and so-and-so, and this thing that he wrote, he said this, and but this is the issue with it. And he's like breaking down all of these really like complex arguments and detailed things of these authors and it's not his field you know so the brother afterwards we were talking he's like he's like i'm sure i'm assuming you didn't really catch this because it's not your field either for me and he's like but like things that we were discussing are semi-obscure in the field of anthropology and he not only did he know about it, he knows about the author, he knows about their works, he knows about the critiques on their works, you know, like he knows all of it. <laughs> you know, that's Dr. Jackson, that's not even his field. And uh, another brother that we know, he's doing his PhD under him, he's like, you know, he's been with him for, I don't know, probably five or six years now, studying under him in the PhD at USC, and he's like, like it just doesn't end. 
Like every every day that passes, I'm, he's like I'm more impressed with the level of his scholarship, which is amazing. And he's such a humble guy. Like if you meet him, you hang out with him. Yeah, he's a polymath. Yeah, subhanAllah. There was this uh, Islamic book, and the intro was like crazy. Like, the Arabic was like, it was like a poem. Mm -hmm. It was the intro. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, you could study Arabic for like 10 years, you still wouldn't get it. Mm -hmm. But he's only doing this to show you that you're in trustworthy hands. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're in trustworthy hands, yeah. Yeah, you read his conclusion. So if you So if you read Islam and the Black American, which every American Muslim should read, just don't give up on the intro. Like once you get past the intro, it's you can understand it. It's not it's not so difficult after that. And it's a really really important read. All of that was to say, which I didn't even get to the point yet, is that uh, we have to up. It takes time and a pain to up our level in reading. So I tried to read the book, the intro, and I couldn't do it, and I shelved it for a while. And then when we started our master's program at at the American University in Cairo, we had this class in. Uh, forget what it was, like contemporary political thought, Muslim political thought or something like that. And the professor we had, she's amazing. Uh, Dr. Hiba Rauf. She's, she's just remarkable, mashallah. She's in Istanbul now and she teaches there. Um, if anyone goes on like any of these summer programs or something, you might find her. But she's really impressive. And she gave us this one homework assignment one week. And she was like a political theory reading. And she was like, it's short, but don't underestimate it. You know, she warned the class. She's like, you have all week to do this assignment. I don't usually give you like 20 pages to read in a week. And so don't underestimate the reading. Don't wait till like the night before and try to do it. Of course, nobody listened. Um, and it was really hard. Like, I'm reading like one paragraph and making diagrams and like drawings in the margins, trying to figure out what's being said in this paragraph. Like, it was really, really difficult reading. But then after that class, I went back to... Islam and the Black American, and I tried to read it again, and I could read it. Mm -hmm. So that was the whole point: is that you know, like upping the level of reading is painful, but it's important. Uh, and I think one of the big things that is a, is a very dangerous now in the Muslim community is everybody wants to engage in all kinds of discussions and topics, but their reading does not. And I have no doubt about this: it does not go past the screen of their phone. Like all of the reading is happening through article titles on Facebook. And just the head, just the title, not even the article, right? And uh, like that's really scary. It's really scary. Uh, Allah help us. Preservation of religion. I, I I felt like you guys were getting tired, so I just give you some tangents and stuff to you know. Preservation of the religion entails everything that is necessary for sound Islamic understanding and practice. Each of the five operational principles in this paper falls under the imperative of preserving the religion. This major objective includes, for example, the creation of a wide variety of research and writing pertaining to Islam, such as excellent English translations, commentaries, and literature relevant to our time and place. In America today, the preservation of the Islamic religion clearly necessitates the foundation of outstanding indigenous Islamic educational institutions. It's absolutely essential. And not only the institutions, but the institutions that will gainfully and respectfully employ the people who graduate from said institutions. Okay, so like we got to a point where everyone's like, oh, we need American Muslim scholars and we need this. And then we confused ourselves and we thought that that's going to take six years. 
Like, we need Muslim American scholars, and okay, yeah, let's send people to study for six years, and it's going to be done. First of all, in Tegaltan, it's not going to take six years. It's going to take 15 years. Right? Like, if you really want someone who knows what they're talking about, it's going to take some time. And then on top of it, where are they going to work? Most of the places they're going to work, they're going to be subject to the tyranny of the masses. <laughs> That's the reality of it, right? Like, you're going to come to Eid prayer, and the the imam is going to decide based on based on the fiqh that it's okay for the women and the men to pray side by side with like a th literally 30 foot gap between them and people are going to lose their marbles because like this has nothing to do with the sharia and so on and to me there's a great line Ibn Niqiq al-Eid said someone argued with him I told you guys this story before someone came to him and he told him so and so is reliable to us and he said وَمَنْ أَنْتُمُ حَتَّى يَكُونَ لَكُمْ وَعِنْدُ it's like, who are you to say he's trustworthy to us? Like, who are you in the first place? <laughs> you know? But this is the reality of it. Like, someone could go and study and spend their life and then, you know, sacrifice and go away from their family and doing this and, and miss the janazas of their grandparents and come back in their, in their late 20s and early 30s broke and stuff like that. And then they're going to come into a community and their wife might, like, give a lecture in the musalla and people lose their mind. For example, again, hypothetical example. Um, so you know, these are, this is like the reality of the situation. So then, what happens? What do you do, right? We have a lot of people like, and, and I don't think that their scholarship is necessarily complete. Just like mine is not complete, right? But we have a lot of people from just from Southern California who went and they studied and they they left the field. They left the field of studying Islam. They went back to their other degrees. See, this is the thing is that in the past, you bring an imam from overseas, and you bring them here, and you take care of their citizenship, and you pay them just enough that they can get by, but not enough that they could ever have any independence, and you control them, right? But now you have people who grew up here, and they get degrees in computer science, they get degrees in engineering, they get master's degree in engineering, worked in finance and, and Wall Street, stuff like that. These are people I know that studied Sharia. And they go and they study, and then they come back, and people want to treat them like we're going to do whatever we want to and they're like they give it a couple of years and they're like forget you I'm not going to do that I'm going to go back to my other field <laughs> you know it's not going to work that way so now this is the situation that we're in Allah help us so not only in Islamic educational institutions but who is going to you know where are people going to go once they finish with these institutions where are they going to go in that intermediary period when they need to develop like someone shouldn't graduate from a program and become they sh no one should do what I did. Seriously, no one should no one should graduate from a program and come back at the age of 29 and be made the imam of a, what's in greater society is considered a mega church. Like ICOI is a mega if it was if we use church terminology it's a mega church. It has 1000 to 2000 people at Jummah prayer. At least when I was there, I think we had like, we estimated usually like 2,000 people at Jummah prayer between the different services. So that's crazy for someone to be 29 years old, have no experience in, in being an imam, have, have no professional training in how to run a community or anything like that, and be put in charge of a community. That's madness. What ideally should happen is people finish their programs like doctors. A doctor finishes their program, they go, they do their little residency, 
you know they they do their rotations first ideally you do some rotations you do like a youth work rotation you do a university rotation you do a masjid rotation you do an inner city rotation you, maybe you do different things right and then you do a residency and then after your residency maybe you do a specialization you know special specialize in some different field or whatever but you have enough time such that when you're finally put in a position like that you have some idea of what you're doing you know these are all institutional issues. If they're not dealt with, we we see the consequences of it. We see the consequences of it. If you don't have institutions that develop people properly and you know take care of them and then hold them accountable, of course, you know nobody's above accountability. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Preservation of the self means to protect human life from violence, sickness, starvation, and anything else that threatens it. Adequate housing. Security and health services are among the many priorities associated with this objective. So like we said last time, if you want to think about what's a platform for the activism, quote-unquote, of the Muslim American community, this is your platform. The five obligations of the Sharia and how to preserve them. So you have enough. Just in the preservation of the self, you have a sufficient platform. Preservation of the mind, you have a sufficient platform of things that you should be worried about as a, as a Muslim. So adequate housing, security, health services are among the priorities of this ob objective. Preservation of reason requires protecting the human mind from such harms as ignorance, insanity, and alcohol and drug addiction. Again, you could spend your life on that. On the positive side, it entails the full development of the human mind, which requires exposure to positive stimulation and good education. So all of those things are part of it as well. Preservation of children focuses on the children but entails everything essential to the welfare of the family. It takes in marriage, parenting, caring for the disabled, and so forth. It necessitates guarding against social evils like the abuse of children, spouses, and the elderly. SubhanAllah, was just uh, an article that popped up today was on this these teachers who were being... Uh, Basically, they're abusing like six-year-olds with autism and stuff like that. You saw that was horrible. There's a special place in hell for some people. May we not be from them. <coughs> Preservation of wealth requires the creation of lawful wealth, its growth and protection. It places economic development at the center of Islam's social project. It also necessitates protecting wealth from waste, destruction, and loss through theft, robbery, fraud, embezzlement, and other crimes. Right, all of that's preservation of wealth. Too big to fail. <laughs> Banking crisis and like what that does to people. Right, um, payday advance loans, big issue. Big issue. Actually, I know a brother who's working on a startup. May Allah give him tawfiq. He's working on a startup that helps people to escape from this horrible uh, cycle of payday advance loans. Because they have insane interest. I forget what it is, like 150, 300% interest rates on these payday. So it's like, because what happens, right? You run out of money and your rent is due on the first. And you get paid on the first. What are you going to do? You need a payday advance loan, right? So you say, I need $1,000. And they say, sure, we'll give you $1,000 in advance on your paycheck that's coming. And we're going to charge you 150% rate in interest on it. And if you can't pay it off, it's going to keep going, keep going. So basically, you're like a slave to your debt. And it's that simple. It's like, you know. So how, how do you, like, if we're thinking, if we actually cared. I'm not saying, like, everyone doesn't have to go into Islamic studies. 
just believe in Islam and do something useful. Like if we we don't care that all these people are caught up in these things, pay, payday advance loans are horrible. So Alhamdulillah, the brother is working on it. He, he's in like he's in Silicon Valley. He's got some initial funding. He's doing some uh, some work around trying to come up with a solution to this thing. I forgot the details of it. I saw him recently and he was telling me about it, but I forgot them. But he's a good brother, inshallah. Allah preserve him and give him tawfiq. Uh, <coughs> like societal obligations, the five major objectives extend to other concerns through the previously mentioned principle. Whatever is necessary to fulfill an obligation is an obligation itself. As illustrated above, preservation of the religion requires that the religion be properly taught, which cannot be done without competent religious scholars. Competent scholars cannot be produced without superior educational facilities. Therefore, it is a major priority to create exceptional Islamic educational institutions. As I said before, one of the things to me that's sad about this is that Islamic studies is actually one of the cheapest fields to produce high-level educational institutions in. Right? You don't need technology. You don't need high-level technology. You don't need labs. You don't need experiments. You don't need any like generally any of the social like anything that's only like research and reading based and like so social sciences, humanities, Islamic studies. All of them are like that. They're actually really cheap comparatively to to sustain. Right? It doesn't need a whole lot of money. Like a lot of our masajid could have forget that. A lot of the chandeliers in our masajid could have sent people to study for five years. Like, this is, it's really sad when you think about it. Like the entirety of our time that we were sponsored to study overseas was like, I think $60,000. $60,000 in the grand scheme of things is like not very much. When you have- 15,000 a year? 15,000 a year, roughly. Yeah. We the, our scholarship was only the four years, well five years I guess so seventy five thousand, fifteen thousand a year, between a thousand a month to live and plane tickets. That's it, thousand a month to live and plane tickets once a year was sufficient for the whole year, right? And we lived you know like decently. We weren't like saving money or anything, but we lived decently, and you know that's like, but like you want to raise sixty thousand dollars to send someone to study. And it's like pulling teeth. And I understand, it's a difficult investment, right? Because you, you put five years into it, you might not get anything. The person might go five years study and you might not get a good product. It's just the way it is. Like, you know, so you're not gonna win every single one. But $60,000 is still a whole lot cheaper than like, what, five million for, for this building? Or I won't even give the other numbers for these various buildings that we have, right? Um, and then everyone's upset. We built them a masjid, nobody comes. Well, you didn't like think about who's going to bring people into the masjid. <laughs> you know, you didn't think you didn't think about that. We can spend millions of dollars on attaining the building, and no thought goes into like, what was the prophet size? Did the prophet size of them have a masjid? Did anyone ever think about that? Like for the first thirteen years of the message of the prophet size of them, did he have a masjid? No, he had someone's house. Like, they literally went to someone's house. 13 years of the masjid. The, the, the point is, the, the message. The prophet came before the masjid came. In our minds, the masjid comes before the teacher, which is completely insane. But, you know, again, Hasbunallah wa ni'man wakil.
Hasbunallah wa ni'mal wakil. And I really hope all this stuff is not self-serving, understood to be self-serving. Really, it's not about me. I, I mean, like, if I could have, believe me, I, I'm, I'm, I take to my mom's side, they're country people. If I could sustain a decent living and take care of my family and live, like, in the mountains, I'd probably do it. <laughs> it's not about me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but it's, uh, uh, and my teachers allowed me to. Who knows if they would. They probably would. They'd be like, good, save the people the hassle of dealing with you. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's not about me. Really, it's not. It's about, like, the community. It's about our people. It's about the religion. It's about the future generations. I, it, like, these are these are really serious things. Allah help us. Allah help us. As indicated above, Islamic law has three levels of priority. Maybe we should stop. I think that's a good place to stop. As indicated above, Islamic law has three levels of priorities, necessities, needs, and complements. So we'll we'll continue from there next time, inshallah.